we continue in our series of Advent, uh, drawing on the reality that Advent means uh, the, the coming, right? Jesus came. First time, that's what we're remembering as a baby. Second time, he's coming back in his full glory as king. And so we're in between. If you ever hear people talk about the two Advents, well, we've seen the first, and we're now waiting on the second. And as I was thinking and hopefully uh, hearing from the Lord this week on, on what to bring before us as a church during this Advent season, my mind kept being drawn to the person of John the Baptist. And there are a couple reasons for that. The first is if you just evaluate John the Baptist and situate him chronologically. Because so if nothing else, just situate him chronologically, uh, you'll find in Luke chapter 1 that his birth comes before Jesus's. Okay, so obviously Jesus is eternal, he's pre-existent, but his becoming human happens in a specific time and place. That's the first advent. So John is born before Christ is born. And in the same way as uh, John comes, chronologically considered, before the first advent, we are here before the second. So there's some similarities there. And so as John comes before the first, as we are here waiting on the second, there's some things about John that should be true of us some prophetic exhortations that should mark John's life that also then need to mark ours and our own waiting as we wait for the Lord to come again and reign as king. And so that's the direction that we'll head this morning to do so. We'll draw our attention to Luke chapter 1. I'll be in a couple places in chapter 1 this morning, but the main thrust of our sermon will be verses 76 through 79. And if you're able, I do invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. It's Luke chapter 1, verses 76 through 79. These are the very words of God. And you, child, talking about John the Baptist, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, And give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And to guide our feet to the pathway of peace. It's Luke chapter 1, 76 through 79. The words of God for the people of God. And God's people say, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, we do acknowledge a few things this morning. A couple of which is this, that that the Bible is from you. And it being from you, that makes it a couple things. One is it's true, it's trustworthy. It's without error or fault. And secondly, it being from you makes it authoritative. And so we ask in your kindness this morning that you would shape us into the image of Christ according to your word. And for one of the promises that that your word makes about itself is that it, it will move in power and also not return void. And we want that to be true of us this morning, that we want to to not be like the person in James who looks at the mirror and forgets his reflection being a hearer only, we actually want to change. Uh, Not by our own effort, uh, uh, but by the power of the Spirit and the Word working in and through us. So would you do that this morning? Uh, We pray in that direction, in Christ's name, amen. So I mentioned we'll be around in a couple places in, in Luke this morning, and it's helpful before we get to that prophecy to understand the, the, the logistics, as it were, that got Zechariah to this place. Right, so why does this prophecy have so much weight? Why does it take on so much importance? Well, a little background uh, information. Zechariah and Elizabeth are John the Baptist's parents. 
Okay, but what we'll find as we back up here in just a second, I just want you to make a mental note of this, that John the Baptist's birth is, in every sense of the word, miraculous. Should not have happened. Could not have happened, save the intervening, redemptive, powerful work of God. So what do we mean by that? We'll back up in chapter 1. You're going to find out, in, beginning in verse 5, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, all right? Remember, that's JTB's dad. Zechariah. He was a priest, a division of Abijah. He had a wife named Elizabeth. They were righteous before God, verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, as you hear that, if you're taking notes, you'd write in your margin uh, Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15 because that is the exact same language used of Abraham and Sarah. They were barren, advanced in age. So what that means for us is this, that physiologically considered, childbearing is impossible. It was impossible for Sarah. It was impossible for Elizabeth. Okay, so the only way that this couple advanced in years, probably in their 70s, and barren for the duration of her entire life, the only way that situation changes is by the intervening miraculous work of God. So look down, an angel comes, prophesies to him, the angel said, verse 13, Zechariah, don't be afraid for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you shall call his name John. Luke chapter one, verse 13 Uh, houses two promises okay the first is explicit meaning it's easy to see it's it's directly in front of us now the second promise is implied okay so what's the first one the first promise is there's the promise of a son okay there's the explicit promise of a child from God to Zechariah and Elizabeth but here's the second promise and it comes by implication the second promise is that Zechariah and Elizabeth had never been forgotten Now, what do I mean by that? If you're in your 70s and your wife has been unable to get pregnant, right? Not for lack of trying. She's been unable to get pregnant for all those years. It stands to reason, and albeit this is conjecture, but it stands to reason that at some point along the way, Zachariah and Elizabeth aren't actually still praying for this. I mean, think about it. How many couples do you know, uh, maybe for whatever reason, I know it's difficult, uh, but childless in their 50s are still praying to conceive. In their 60s, still praying to conceive. In their 70s, still praying to conceive. I would submit, don't know any. Because there comes a point in time where you have fervently prayed and you truly have sought the Lord and the answer has just been no and we resign ourselves to it for sure and it makes all the sense in the world but I would even albeit conjecture I would say that I bet Zachariah and Elizabeth haven't actually still been praying for this for years maybe decades and maybe there's a real sense of God being distanced or themselves being forgotten 
And when the angel comes and this word is given, it is a promise to us that God does not forget where we are. Amen? He never forgets. Now, when you hear that, okay, and, and, and this reality of God not forgetting is, is so much bigger than just that. Okay, so God knows exactly who you are, knows exactly where you are, knows all of your circumstances, everything you think, everything you say, everything you do, all of it. He knows exactly where you're seated this morning. He knew you were going to sit in that seat before you did, except some of you have Baptist backgrounds, you're in the same seat every week, so you knew. But, <laughs> but, he knew every single one of us in the deepest possible detail. And he's with us. Okay, and there are two ways that that can strike you. For some, the reality that God does not forget who you are and will not is incredibly comforting. Right? It's a comforting reality that he's always with you. Thick or thin, hell or high water, joyful celebration or deepest pit of despair, he doesn't forget. And you're comforted by that. And that's one response. Here's a second though. For some of us, the reality that God knows all and doesn't forget and he does know you is condemning. And it's scary. Because you don't want him to know you. You don't want him to have that knowledge. And like me at times, like our parents of old, Adam and Eve, we would love to hide. Somehow pretending that if we can disappear, he will disappear. Others of us, you don't even want to know God. Don't even want him to find you. Why? Because for some, that means a face-to-face reckoning with our sin and our desires. Okay, so comfort or condemnation. Now, here's the great news, and we'll get there in a little bit. I'm not going to jump ahead. We'll find at the end of our message this morning, you don't have to be afraid of the com- condemnation. Right now, some, some will if you reject them, but you don't have to. You don't have to be afraid of the condemnation and comfort, which is going to be rooted in this tender mercy of God, which is the exact wording in our passage this morning. That reality is readily, fully, and freely made available to every single person in this room. So whether you got drugged here by a family member or a parent or guilted into it by a spouse or you just woke up this morning and said, I don't know why, but I just want to go to church. I'm telling you right now. The tender mercy of God will switch condemnation to comfort when nothing else can because nothing else can. Okay, so God knows you. Whether you want to reject him or trust him or whether you love him, he knows you. Everything about you. And if you've been in a season where you just wonder, God, are you still there? Do you still care? Do you not know what I'm going through? The answer is, yeah, he does know. And he is still there. And he does care. I remember being in, uh, now I've shared this before, I'm sure. Uh, but you can humor me. I was in a, a seminary class in, goodness, I don't know when it was, probably 2006. At Dallas Seminary, so what was that, 15 years ago. Uh, and I remember, now I know it's hard to imagine, but I was pretty immature. 
right? I remember walking in and sitting down. And I sat in the same seat every time because I'm like some of you. And I was sitting in the front row. And uh, it was like third week of class. And the professor, I still remember Dr. Lynn McLaughlin, he met us at the door. You know, shook your hand, welcome, 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 welcome. And he was doing that to kind of learn everybody's name. So he greeted us all by, by our first names. We go in and sit down. And I'm on the front row. And it's myself and uh, this, this other fellow student, this lady who had moved uh, from, from China with her husband and her son. And right before class starts, she begins weeping. And I'm the only person close. And I'm here at a seminary trying to learn to be a pastor. And looking over at this woman crying. And I know that at some level, there's a movement of comfort that needs to go in this direction. (laughs) Now, did I give it? Absolutely not. But I knew, I knew all right, that I should be doing something as best I could about it. But instead, I'm just sitting there and going, oh, my word, how, why is she crying? Right, you can pray for my wife that that was my response. Why is she crying? What is going on? And so I'm trying to, you know, I'm doing this thing, like, uh, class starts and she raises her hand, and I'm like, oh, my word. She's about to confess something, say something. The whole class is going to be looking at the jerk next to her that does nothing to this crying sweet lady. So she raised her hand. Now I'm on pins and needles. What's about to come out of her mouth? And Dr. McLaughlin calls on her. And through tears, this didn't even occur to me that this was even a thing. And through tears, she says this. I'll never forget. She said, Dr. McLaughlin, when I walked through the door this morning... You called me by my name. And I'm sitting there so far, I'm going, sweetheart, this is graduate school. That is not earth-breaking. You called me by my name. And she said, in that moment, it reminded me that God knows my name. And at that point, this became really profound. Because here's what that little word, that one little greeting reminded her of. Hey, God knows where you are. And he knows your name. And he loves you and he cares about you. And it's very personal. And I would just tell you this morning, that's true of you. God knows you. Knows exactly where you're at. He knows that these couple weeks leading to this holiday where we celebrate the first coming, he knows that for some people in this room, this is the most dreaded two-week stretch of your entire year. He knows all that. He hadn't forgotten. Okay, so Zechariah, I hear you. Your prayer is going to be answered. And in that answering of the prayer, we need to see a miracle. A miracle. A barren woman most likely in her 70s, conceiving and giving birth, right? So if we're looking for ways in which to overlay John the Baptist's life and ours, I will tell you this, they both had the same exact beginning. Because his physical birth from Zechariah and Elizabeth is just as miraculous as any of our rebirths in Jesus. Okay, so when we're just looking at what does it look like to wait on Christ in this second advent, this second coming, is to first note this. The only reason why I'm even concerned about waiting for it, 
long to wait for it, celebrate it, anticipate it. The only reason why that's true of me is I'm a walking miracle because my rebirth only happened through the miraculous intervention of God. Amen? It's your walking miracle, just like John the Baptist was. Because do you know how much John the Baptist had to do with his original physical birth? How much did he contribute to it? Nothing. Nothing. And the rebirth of you and me, we contributed nothing. It is God's gracious, intervening, regenerating, saving, redemptive grace into our lives by which we respond to in repentance and faith. We are reborn as miracles of God. Okay, now here's why I know that. We're in the prayer, I said, I believe the Bible's from God, and it is. I believe that it's true, and it is. Here's what it says, Ephesians chapter 2, right? We've been preaching through that. So just to calibrate us back in that direction, chapter 2, verse 1, says what? We were dead, dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, if you do a deep word study on it, you'll find that the Greek word for dead means dead, without life, which means for that dead person to come alive, an absolute miracle of God must take place. Now, here's where the miracle gets even deeper. Not only does it say that we're dead, it says that we took that deadness and we put it on full display for everyone to see because then it says, you walked, which is biblical language for living, in your trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power of the air. So not only before Christ and his redeeming work in all of our lives, if we know him, that not only were we dead and put the deadness on display, we put the deadness on display because we were following actively one singular person. Who does the Bible say that that is? Satan. So, so far, here's your warm Christmas uh, message. You were dead, living in your sin, following Satan. That's all of us pre-Jesus. Dead, following Satan. And then here's what it says. By nature, we were children of wrath. Actually, everything that came natural to us deserved the wrath of God. Now, that's biblical anthropology. That's what it says was true of you and for me. So, how does a person who's dead, following Satan, and is by nature a child of wrath, how do those same people find themselves in the same room, singing the same songs, worshiping the same God, celebrating the same newness of life, weeping as the Bible's preached, joyfully res- uh, exulting over their salvation, anticipating the coming of King Jesus. How do you go from that to this, a miracle? That's how. And just like John the Baptist's birth is miraculous, our rebirth is miraculous. And some of us need to start approximating as part of our identity on a daily basis that I was dead and Jesus made me alive. I'm a walking miracle. Uh, I mean, you may expect these last few years have brought more funerals. Uh, 
than some previous years. And we had a rough stretch here at Harvest where it seemed like every month, about four straight months, just seasoned saints in our church went home to be uh, with the Lord. Ken and I did one of those funerals together of Duffy DeVoto. A lot of y'all know, uh, uh, knew Duffy and uh, his sweet wife, wife Ginger, who thankfully is still with us. And uh, I remember sitting at that funeral and reflecting on this reality of death because I've never done a funeral and I've never done a graveside when the person got up out of the casket, ever. Do you know why? Because they were gone. They were gone. That was you and me. And as shocked as you would be to see a body come out of a casket, that's the same thing that should resonate with us when Jesus makes us brand new. Right? That awe, shocking response of how could this happen? God, how would you do it for me? I can't believe it. That's where it starts for us. So we have this miraculous birth of John the Baptist and the reality that our rebirth in Christ is just as much, if not more, so that we are walking miracles. Okay, so that happens. So here's the question. What next? Okay, so if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, right, via repentance and faith, and really are made new, new creation, what, what happens after that? So, so John wasn't just born and they celebrate his birth and then nothing else. Where there were some prophetic realities spoken by Zechariah about John saying, look, this miracle wasn't just about you being born and us celebrating the power of God. No, there were things for you to do. So this miraculous birth then pushes us into this worshipful response. So the fact that we start as a miraculous birth should put us on a trajectory to live a certain way. And there's some things that should be true of our waiting that are true of John. So that's verses 76 through 79. This is Zechariah saying, hey, son, this is before he's born. This is the prophecy where he said, hey, your start is miraculous just like ours is, but it doesn't stop there. Right? That's just the beginning. And when we are saved and redeemed by Christ, it's just the beginning. But there's this entire life ahead of us that needs to be defined by some things. And here, Zechariah defines them in the following. Look at verse 76. It says this. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Now, I'm not assigning any of us this kind of office of prophet. But I am saying this. There are some prophetic realities that should be true of us. Right, some exhortations, some, some entering into our life and our culture with a prophetic message, this foretelling of what is true about God, what is true about humanity, what is true about Jesus. And then we got to step into that, that we prophetically step into these foretellers of the truth of God. And here's what else he says. He says, you will do this as you go before to prepare the ways of the Lord. Okay, so what was the preeminent pathway for John the Baptist? It was uh, preparation, or the idea there is to make ready, readiness for the paths or ways of the king. Because if you think about John the Baptist, uh, and we just go 30,000 foot, uh, a theological viewpoint on him. Okay, so this will appeal to like the 2% nerds in the room, then I'll get to the other 98% of us here in a minute. So bear with me. Uh, if we think about John the Baptist. There's a theological 
reality that's really important. And that is, all the way back in the Old Testament, uh, God has designed uh, some safeguards so that someone, if they were coming to uh, uh, proclaim to be the Messiah, if they were false, they could easily be found out. So, so the biggest safeguard that God put in place is, and you read about it in, uh, towards the end of your Old Testament, the prophets, Malachi, uh, you have uh, what he calls one day another Elijah will come. Okay, and the Messiah can't come until that Elijah figure comes first. And that Elijah figure will be defined by a few things and it is the only person in all of scripture that's given permission to pronounce this is the Messiah. Only one. Well, Jesus, in talking about John the Baptist, says, if you're ready to hear it, I'm going to tell you something. That's the updated Greek. If you're ready to hear it, I'm going to tell you something. Here it is. John the Baptist was the Elijah that is to come. So he's the only person with biblical permission to tell us who the Messiah is, which is why in the Gospel of John, the apostle, he's writing about John the Baptist, and John the Baptist says, chapter 1, verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's a massive statement because he's the only one that can say it and it be true. So, John the Baptist, this really big figure linking the old covenant to the new. Okay, but there aren't just these bigger theological pictures in play with John the Baptist. There are these ground-level, applicable things in play with John the Baptist. And this is what we find in Zechariah's words. That what is the first thing John the Baptist is about to be about? He's about to, he needs to put his hands to making the pathways of the Lord. Preparation and readiness for the ways of the king. Now, some of the ways in which we do this uh, are scripturally clear. Some of them are not. Okay, so for some, you're going to have to really sit down and do the work. And you're going to have to put your life in all the big buckets, right? These, these arenas where you find yourself, right? Whether that's, you know, work, home life, neighborhood, parenting, uh, your spouse, whatever the big buckets are. And you're going to have to do some work with the Spirit and really sit down and think, okay, How do I, in all of these arenas, bring preparation for the ways of the king? Well, one of them is explicitly given to us in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. Wash her in the water of the word. We can present what? Present her blameless before the Lord. So for husbands, it becomes pretty clear. How do you, in your home, in your marriage... Do this readiness for the ways of the Lord. Well, self-sacrificially love your wives and keep in mind that one day I want to present her to Jesus better than when I found her. That's a way to do preparation and readiness. Right? So you've got to do all these arenas and start to really think through, okay, how do I do this? This preparation and this readiness. Now, big picture Zechariah is going to say, not only do you prepare the way for the Lord, but here's some specific ways in which you do it. Specific ways in which you do it. And these apply to any of our arenas. Here's the, here's the first one. He says this. Verse 77, give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sin. So what is uh, one of the ways we step in John the Baptist's shoes as we wait for the second advent to come? What's one of the things we we're supposed to be doing it is proclaiming the ways of salvation. 
The Christian, and hear me on this, the Christian is the only person that has a key that unlocks salvation for all of humanity. No other system of belief, no other faith, no other moralistic deism, nothing. Jesus Christ, the only way, that message is embodied by the Christian. The only people with a true knowledge of salvation, not because we're smarter, I mean, look around the room, we know that's not true, right? Look up here. Not because we're smarter, not because we're better. Not, one thing, God has illuminated our minds and graciously redeemed us. And here's what, John, here's what Zachariah says about John the Baptist. Hey, if that's true of you, if the miraculous birth is true of you, we go out into the world to give knowledge of salvation to all people. Okay, and what's one of the key components of that? It is this, the message of forgiveness or sins. Now, I gotta tell you, I'm not posturing myself as a preeminent example of obedience in this area. Right? In fact, my wife is far more the evangelist in our home than I am, admittedly so. But I do know this, that even being true, okay, so let me just kind of rebuke myself as part of the message, because that is true. Here's what I know is also true. We are not obeying and following Jesus if we're not sharing the gospel. I don't say that to shame you. I don't say that to put that on some kind of list of things you got to do to make God love you because that's legalism and that's a false gospel. I just say biblically considered. We've got to be sharing the good news. We hold the knowledge of salvation. Now, what is part of that, that process? Well, it's the forgiveness of sins. And that forgiveness of sins, which comes only through Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection, that forgiveness of sins was motivated by something. And hear me on this. It was motivated by what this text says in verse 78 was the tender mercy of our God. Tender mercy. So in scripture, you'll see a lot of times salvation uh, and grace are linked. And it's absolutely true. We only say by grace through faith in Christ. But when grace is mentioned, just make this association in your mind. Grace is usually associated with guilt. So God has graciously pronounced us innocent because we all are guilty. So grace and guilt. Now, there's also an association with mercy. And it's key here that mercy is chosen. All right, so if grace goes with guilt, note this, that mercy goes with misery. Mercy is misery, and that idea, what that word would carry with it is being stuck in the futile meaninglessness of life. And that is life apart from Jesus. You may find localized meaning, so if you're here this morning and don't know the Lord, certainly welcome, thrilled you're here. I'm not saying your life as you locally experience it is pointless or meaningless, but I am saying cosmically considered, in the realm of eternity, there is nothing enduring about it. And so to be lifted out of just the darkness of that place, of, of what the, you know, the Bible's book of philosophy, Ecclesiastes, tells us, vanity of vanities, emptiness of emptiness. Life is empty without God in an ultimate sense. And here, part of John the Baptist's message is going to be I mean, if you want to get out of that pit, right, if you want to step into 
salvation. Just know, it doesn't just forgive your sins, though it does it. It actually lifts you out of the misery of futile and meaningless living. And it ushers you into a new kingdom and a new life that is eternal. And it's so much bigger than you ever could have imagined and ever could have dreamed of. And here, Zechariah is saying, and God does that. Why? Because he is tender. Tender, that's a, that's a deep word of inward affection. Why does he do it? Because he has to? No, because he chooses to. Why? Because he loves you and is merciful. And for some of us this morning, it's really easy for you to believe God loves the world and it's almost impossible for you to believe that God actually loves you. But he does. And he is tender and he is merciful. And that is his motivation behind salvation and forgiveness of sins. That's the message we carry. So you'll start to note that this waiting in the pattern of John the Baptist, it is not idle. It is active. It is engaged in the deepest and richest thing we could possibly be engaged with. And that is telling humanity how humanity can come back to God. Where salvation and reconciliation are possible. Where eternal life dwells. And Zachariah saying, hey, John, little guy, your entire life is going to be aimed in this direction. And I would submit harvest believers in this room same is true of us same is true of us uh, a couple more things here and we'll keep going we'll finish up that idea of forgiveness of sins uh, there's there there's several reasons why people have a hard time uh, with it but I'll tell you one preeminent one a lot of times it's hard for people to believe they can be forgiven or for you to believe that you can be forgiven or someone else that you know to believe that they can be forgiven not because the Bible doesn't say it's possible, it's because we don't treat each other this way. You know what makes it really hard to believe in the forgiveness of sins? Not forgiving one another. Not treating each other like we have been forgiven. Right, that's why it's so rank and odious to get in a church and get people that are entrenched in bitterness, resentment, and unforgiveness towards one another. This is the most anti-gospel environment we could imagine. And some of you have a hard time believing God's forgiven you. You know why? Because you won't forgive somebody else. The forgiveness of sins, it is true doctrinally, and one of the gifts we give one another is to taste it experientially. To really treat each other as we do forgive one another. And as you think forward over these next two weeks, the next two weeks draw so many of us into giant areas of unforgiveness and difficult relationships. And I know it. And I do not in the least bit stand up here undermining the difficulty of that. But I do know this. It's going to be really hard for you to actually taste and know that the Lord is good if you're harboring resentment and bitterness towards someone else. 
So we don't just preach forgiveness of sins. We got to actually forgive. And here, and I, I've told, I won't tell it in detail. We don't have time. But and back in 2008, I reached, I encountered the most difficult scenario of forgiveness I've ever uh, faced in my entire life. Okay, it's a guy, he's in prison now, three life sentences. Uh, we'll spare the details. Uh, but when I tell you that I was 100% willing to serve the Lord, if it meant decimating that person, I was all in. That even mean telling God, all right, look, I'll drive, I'll visit him in prison, I will show him how terrible he is, how many lives he's destroyed. I, happily, sacrificially, will be your hammer of judgment, Lord. Here I am, send me. And I offered that to the Lord several times. I remember being in Little Rock, Arkansas, right about to enter purgatory between there and here on I-40. And and, uh, I remember being in Little Rock, again offering the Lord my service, and God clearly saying to me, you got to forgive him. And I remember politely looking back to the Lord and saying, that obviously wasn't from you. So we're going to rehash that again. It goes through my whole speech. You know, blah, blah, blah. Hey, Jamie, your role is to forgive him. Ah, you got to be kidding me. But here's what I found. And God's exhortation to me in that direction wasn't just about me and this other guy. It was about me and the Lord. Because if I could forgive him, I would understand just a fraction of what it is for God to forgive me. Because I assure you, I've offended God infinitely more than this man ever offended me. Forgiveness of sins. Yes, proclaim it doctrinally, but we got to live it and taste it and put it on display. This tender Mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from our high. That's, that's, that's poetic language for divine light visiting earth. Okay, so Jesus, light of the world, you can do that work later. Read John chapter 1, but it's powerful imagery, right? And God's light usually comes in Scripture for two purposes, salvation and illumination. Jesus embodies both. He illuminates us and saves us. Okay, so the light visiting from on high. To do what? To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And to guide our feet into the pathway of peace. So what are these last couple things uh, that are true of John the Baptist that need to be true of us? Well, here's the first one is. We are to be people of light. That when we step into our workplaces, neighborhoods, homes, schools, churches, D.C.s, wherever it is, that we are the ones that bring light into the situation. Okay, so if I were to go to your place of employment, neighborhood, small group, whatever it is, and just ask. Now, you're not allowed to answer this question about yourself, right? If I were just to ask, you know, is so-and-so someone that brings light and life to this environment? How do you think they would answer? And again, I can tell you right now, I know people would say I don't. I know they would. Right, so I got work to do. I got some repentance ahead of me. What would they say about you? So dads, as the 
leaders of your homes, right, our homes, when you come in the door, just like I do, 5, 5, 36 o'clock, whatever it is, depending on the day, do I bring light or do I bring exhaustion, drudgery, and woe is me? Moms, do you bring light? Take the opposite. When you wake up, right, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a corporate executive or whatever, whatever you find yourself putting your hands to that day, does it start with light? Or when you go to your small group, do you bring light? Whatever it is. Kids, we got kids in here. We had more in the first service. We got some students in here. What about you? Or when you walk into your classroom, do you bring light to your teacher? Light to your classmates. If we're going to walk in the pathway of John the Baptist, we have to be people of light. Because we are to shine it into the darkness. The world lives in darkness apart from Christ. Amen? And we did too. We bring light that then hopefully helps us become a guide into the pathway of peace. Guide into the pathway of peace. I think it was this summer. And you'd have to ask Shannon. At some point, we sat down, we were kind of doing the, the uh, oh my word, Beatitudes, Beatitudes with the kids. And, uh, you know, going through them, you know, blessed are the blessed are. You know what I never read? I never read blessed are the angry. I never read blessed are the fighters. And some of us, right, you notice I keep saying us. I'm not saying you. I'm saying us, right, because I love a good fight. Some of us, we wake up and you scroll Twitter and you check Facebook and you are just ready to go in for the day. And who's the next person to fight? Who's the next person to get after? Oh, did you hear what so-and-so said? I can't believe you said it. Did you see what the news said? Did you said what? And you are, just, you, I mean, you are so charged up right now. There's no possibility for you to bring peace in any situation. I didn't read any of that in the Beatitudes. I did read this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Do you bring peace? Or are you always kind of in a fight with somebody? That's a problem. And by the way, that's a you problem. It's a me problem. Blessed are the peacemakers. Are we a guide into peace? Now look, you say, well, John the Baptist had some pretty tough stuff to say to the Pharisees. He sure did. And if I catch somebody preaching a false gospel, I'm going to go in on them. I promise you that. That's acceptable. But if their foreign policy with China is different than mine, can you just be at peace? Can we? If they're om- Omicron, no Omicron, Legatron, Megatron, whatever it is next. Can you be okay if you just view it differently with someone? Or do you just have to fight? 
Some of you are still the folks that get mad if somebody chooses to wear a mask in a mask-free service. Let's get real. Man, can we just be at peace? I'm being so charged up and angry all the time. And I'm speaking to you as someone that I love a good conflict. That's not right. If we're going to walk in the ways of John the Baptist as we wait, we're to be guides into peace. What's Paul saying? As much as it depends on you and me to live at peace with all people. Okay, so we got a few more weeks of this Advent season. A few more weeks to ask the Lord to situate us in this direction of John the Baptist while we wait on the second Advent. To be people who preach the tender mercy of God, the salvation of sins, forgiveness, to bring light, and to be at peace. So earlier in the message I said, hey, if you are fearful of condemnation, you don't have to be. That's because this is true. Because God really did make a way. And it's a tender, merciful God who sent his son to die the death that we all deserved. And that he did pour out condemnation and wrath and it all went on Jesus. So that you and I can repent and believe and be freely credited with righteousness and eternal life. You don't have to be afraid. But if you reject it, if you reject it, then condemnation one day will be true. And you won't know the comfort and you won't know the tender mercy. And what my hope is that maybe today's the day that as we are about to take communion, uh, that as we do so, they're gonna be Uh, elders, staff, some of their wives at these tables all around this church. It would be the thrill of our Advent season to help you walk towards Jesus, to experience that tender mercy, to know the forgiveness of sins and the salvation of God, that you too can, by the gracious extension of God's power, become a walking miracle. We'd love that. If you've already trusted Christ, I mean, you are just a season where you go, I need some comfort. It's hard. And these next two weeks can be really hard. Can I get amen? Some of you have less than ideal family situations. I was talking to a lady between services last service. Her dad died on Christmas or Christmas Eve. That's a reminder every year of some hard stuff. Some of you are first Christmases without certain family members. It's okay that it's hard. You have to pretend that it's not. We'd love to pray for you and with you and try to speak some sort of comfort into that. But just like John the Baptist, we began with a miraculous birth. But it doesn't stop there. There's a direction where to be aimed in verses 76 through 79 is that direction for all of us. And say we're going to pray, and as I pray, I'll talk about communion in the prayer. And as I pray, if you are an elder or staff and a spouse that uh, are going to take your place, as I do invite you to do so, as we'll continue the service by celebrating communion with one another. Father, we do uh, confess that, that certainly it's true of us that we do not match up to these exhortations for John the Baptist. 
We're not always people of light. I don't always bring life. I do get scared in evangelistic opportunities. And so I repent. God, in your kindness and grace, I just ask that you would make this true of me, true of us. In this season, maybe like none other, that we would begin to bring the knowledge of salvation to those who don't know you, that we would preach the tender mercy of God that makes this salvation freely available, that we would exhort people to respond in repentance and faith, that we would be the ones that bring life to situations, not anger, not fights, but peace. And God, as we celebrate communion, it's the ultimate reminder that we are at peace with you if we've trusted in Christ alone and repented of our sins. That as we drink this juice, it's a reminder that Jesus' blood was shed so that ours didn't have to be, and his body was broken so that ours wouldn't be. And may we come to this in joyful celebration that we really are walking miracles. And I pray and ask this in Christ's name. Amen.